Well, if you would turn to Matthew 4. As a Christian for the past 44 plus years, I have made my way through the Gospels numerous times. And in preparing in this series in Matthew, it is just once again clear to me how inexhaustive the life of Christ is, how we can never exhaust the truths and the realities and just the, the diamonds we find, particularly in the Gospels, as we read about our Savior, as we learn about him. And, and today we are once again at that place where we're here to learn more about who Christ is. The purpose of a, of a book's introduction is to help us to understand who the main character is and what he's all about. In a book I'm reading, Jason Roberts' biography of James Holman, it's entitled A Sense of the World. His first chapter heading immediately captures our attention. The chapter heading says, I see things better with my feet. He explains this title earlier in his introduction with these words. Until the invention of the internal combustion engine, the most prolific traveler in history was also the most unlikely. Born in 1786, James Holman was in many ways the quintessential world explorer, a dashing mix of discipline, recklessness and accomplishment, a Knight of Windsor, fellow of the Royal Society and best-selling author. It was easy to forget though that he was intermittently crippled and permanently blind. It's an intriguing introduction. And in his first four and a half chapters, Matthew introduces us to Jesus's identity with an introduction I think even more intriguing. In chapter one, his identity as God's son is announced by angels at his birth. He is Jesus, the savior, the Messiah, the promised one to come in the kingly line of David and in the line of Abraham, the father of Israel. He was fully human and fully divine. He was the one to whom wise men would bow down. The one whose birth and life are the culmination of generations of prophecy and anticipation. He's the king and he's the righteous judge of the world, perfectly filled with God's spirit and loved by God, his father, as the only man as well who has conquered sin. He is the perfect man to bear the sins of the world. That is Matthew's introduction in chapter one alone. And in chapter three, John the Baptist identifies him as the Lord and God speaks from heaven at his baptism, calling him his beloved son. And finally, in chapter four, we see even Satan acknowledges him as the son of God. Just four and a half chapters. And Matthew covers all of those Identity, the identity of Jesus Christ. Now from 4.12, which Devin began last week, all the way through chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus' Jesus's ministry is on display. He, he demonstrates why this 
fulfillment, the fulfillment of all these prophecy, prophecies have come true as Matthew describes in great detail his ministry of teaching, his ministry of preaching, of healing the sick, of delivering the oppressed and setting free those who were captive to sin. Now, having left Nazareth after John's arrest, Jesus settles in the region of Capernaum where he begins his ministry in 417. And look at 417. David finished with this last week. Verse 417, from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The inauguration of Christ's kingdom begins with the calling of his first disciples in verse 18 through 22. While, G while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, your word is a light unto our path, and it is a lamp unto our feet. And we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would light our understanding. You would illuminate our understanding of your word today. That your name might be lifted up high. That your name might be glorified. That your people, your church, might be encouraged and equipped. And may they, may they feast on the truths that are in your word. Would you speak to us today, we ask, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, seemingly on a stroll by the water, this call to these men can seem abrupt at first reading because it sounds as if Jesus is just walking by the lake. He spots a couple of guys fishing, four strangers, as a matter of fact, and for no apparent reason, he, he calls their name out. He calls them to follow him. And they, they do. They leave their nets and they leave their boats and they leave their families and they leave their livelihood and they follow after him. Now, each of the gospel writers wonderfully gives an account of Jesus' calling of the disciples and each in a slightly different uh, variety or, or, or variations to help us understand but all of the the Gospels provide a, a helpful helpful details to understand this event as a whole for us to, to understand what's behind this event it, it appears the disciples had met Jesus over a span of a year earlier that this wasn't their first encounter with the Savior that that they had encountered him at different occasions in in John chapter 1 John writes the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said behold the Lamb of God now the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so we see in, in John chapter 1, there was this, this previous encounter. And then in, Luke, in Luke's account of this, this situation, this event, and Luke's, Luke is talking, these, these men are, are fishing and they're mending their nets. And Peter had been working all night long and had caught no fish. And Jesus comes and he, he was walking by. There's a massive crowd that are, that's pressing in on him. And he just gets into one of the boats. He gets into one of the boats owned by, by John and James and, and Peter and Andrew. And as you read in Luke 5, you see that, that these four men were actually partners in fishing. And so Jesus just gets into one of the boats. But in that day and age, it would be unusual for just a stranger to suddenly grab a boat and go out a little bit from shore and, and stand and vote as he's preaching to these crowds. And so there's an understanding that these men had a previous relationship with Jesus. And Luke tells us that as Jesus is preaching, Peter and James and John and Andrew are there. And Jesus is done. He tells Peter to pull out a little further out and cast his nets. And Peter said, oh, we've been fishing all night. Jesus says, just do it. And he casts his nets and they pull in such a great amount of fish that the boat begins to sink. And it's that moment Peter falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, speaking to Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he, he, he recognizes who the Lord is. And so as we read in chapter 4 this calling of the fishermen, we, we get an understanding that these men had had an encounter with Jesus. And it's understandable after seeing his power, after hearing his preaching, that they would immediately follow after him. And there are two points for us to see in this passage. And oftentimes, this passage, and, and, and it's, it's not wrong to approach it this way, this passage is used to inspire the church to, to evangelism, to inspire the church to respond immediately to the Savior, and, and rightly so. But I... I believe there is, there is more behind this passage, and it's about Christ. It's not about us. It's a passage that, that shows us Jesus' care and concern for each person individually. And it shows us Jesus' care and concern for the world. Look at verses 18 through 21. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they leave their nets and they follow him. Now, how, how do we know this story? 
Matthew wasn't here. So most likely, almost obviously, Jesus is the one recounting this story to Matthew as Matthew writes it down. And when, when Jesus in verse 17 says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is now, by calling these disciples, he's declaring, I am here. My kingdom is now a present reality. My rule and my reign my, as the sovereign son of God is here because out of love, I came to bring light and life into the world. You see, when Jesus in verse 17 says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you have to understand why the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand because it's a world that has been declining from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It is a world that is in need of restoration. It is a world that is in need of rescuing. And so God comes in Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and he comes to restore the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is now at hand. And it is at hand by changing and transforming lives. And so when Jesus walks by these disciples, he is about transforming and changing lives. And he begins with these guys. Before Jesus saves the world, he first saves and changes these men. He specifically chose them as he chooses all who come to believe in him. Here, here's the first evidence of God's sovereign rule. In love, he chooses and he calls to saving faith these men who he has predestined to follow after him. Here is the gracious and marvelous, mysterious doctrine of election that brings all to saving faith. Here is God's concern, Christ's concern for the individual. The Apostle Paul celebrates this doctrine again and again in his epistles in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's, here's one of the, 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 the rich mysteries as well as one of the, the rich doctrines of the Gospels that Christ came to save. That you sit here today as a believer in Christ because he came and he called your name. He chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. A recipient of his grace all through the son of God. He called these men as he called us to follow him. You know, in ancient Near Eastern times, the, the disciples, if you wanted to be a disciple of a certain rabbi, you would go and you would find that rabbi and you would follow after that rabbi and you'd just be, you'd get as close to him as possible. You'd listen to him as he's teaching. You'd listen to him in the synagogue. You'd listen to him when he's in the marketplace and you would, you would do what he'd do. These, these, these men would want to be a disciple of a certain rabbi. They would follow after him. But here, Jesus calls these disciples. They don't come after Christ. He comes after them. What a, what again, a marvelous description 
of the doctrine of, of election. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, they did not choose to follow Jesus. He, he chose them and he, and he called them. And the very first act of God's sovereign care in the, in the life of these men and in, in the life of every person is choosing them that they would trust in him. In, in John, in John um, 15, Jesus says that you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. John 6, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. All these wonderful passages, Acts 13, 48, all those who were appointed to eternal life. Here we see God in his sovereignty, in the kingdom of heaven at hand, choosing men just as he chose us. And it is a, it is a choosing because he came out of love. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He came out of love to bring life and light to the world, to bring light and life to your life, to give you the inheritance that is so wonderfully promised to us in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, being guarded by God himself. This, this is the story behind the choosing of these men, and this is the story of God choosing you. If you leave here today with only one thought in mind, just remember God chose you. God had a personal care and concern for you by name. And he chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you were even a glint in your mom and dad's eyes, he chose you. And he chose these men to, to be his disciples. Now, Peter, as I said in his letter, reminds, these, reminds the early believers that their, their salvation was the theme of the Old Testament prophecy, as, as is our salvation. And the prophets, the prophets of old, Peter says, eagerly searched and diligently studied the things that we now enjoy. The salvation that we now enjoy, having been chosen before the foundation of the world. And these, these men were chosen by God, not for the task first that they would perform. He didn't choose them because of who they were, because they were fisher men and they had some sort of skill at fishing. He chose them simply because he's the sovereign God. He chose them because he called them out of his love. Now, yes, like all disciples, they had a task to perform as we have a task to perform, but that is not why we are chosen. God, God, God chose the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the unwise things of the world. And he chose us not because of anything good or bad that we have done, as Paul says in Romans 9. He chose us simply to honor and glorify his name and to bring good to you. 
And so these, these men, these men were not chosen for the task they would perform, but because God's love and saving grace was simply upon their lives. And the same is true for all of us. The kingdom has come into our hearts in the person of Jesus Christ through the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. The evidence of his coming to us, the evidence of his coming to these men and dwelling in us is a transformed lives. And, and these men's lives were transformed. His kingdom has come. But it won't be fully here until Jesus finally returns. And it is then... It is then that, it, that the devil who, who he defeats in earlier in chapter 4 will finally be crushed, will finally be defeated. Sin will be destroyed and death will be put to death. That, that, is, that is the end result here. This is our great salvation and this is our, our future hope. And until then, he has not only chosen us, but he is personally guarding us and he is personally preserving us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so motivated by his love, he has saved us for his glory, for our good. And as we read here in this calling of these men, he has saved us. He has saved these men for the good of others. Jesus in John's gospel again tells us that as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Get that? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says this, abide in my love. And then a little bit later, he goes on. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. So his care and concern is for us personally, but it's also, secondly, his care and concern is for the world. That we would bear much fruit, that these men would bear much fruit as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus chooses these men and then he tells them why in verse 19. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I find that an incredibly ironic statement to seasoned fishermen. It's, it's not their skill that Jesus is interested in, but in what they catch. I, I've got to confess, I hate fishing. My older brother, who loves to fish, has wasted hours of his life trying to catch something not worth eating. My wife knows. Now, all my years growing up, my older brother's baseball skills were severely lacking. But oh, he could bait a hook with some blood-sucking worm. No problem. I don't get fishing. I don't like fishing. It seems like a lot of hard work for very little pale. The symbolism is vividly clear here though. Jesus wants to understand, these men to understand that their life and their calling is not to be about fishing, not to be about actual fish, not for their personal gain, but for the, for the gain of someone else, the gain of another, a gain they will one day fully come to understand. Again, to see not, not fish come into a boat, but men come in, and women coming into the kingdom of God. That, that is what this is about. He calls these men, not only because he loves them, but because he also loves the multitude that are following him. The multitude who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
And as we close chapter four next week, we will see the depth of his care and his concern and his love for the world because Jesus knows our suffering. He knows our suffering because he not only entered our world, he walked among us, he, he ate with us, he, he suffered with us, and he eventually died for us. He understands. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. But that can only happen if our sin, the cause of all of our suffering, can be dealt with. And he did that with his sinless life, bearing our shame and experiencing our suffering and the full wrath of God that we deserve and dying in our place, a death that we deserve on a cross that we should have been put on that he might satisfy God's righteous judgment. That, that's his care and concern for the world, not just for these men and not just for you, but for the entire world. And it's why he calls men and women to be his disciples. Because he has this care and concern for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He told James and John and Peter and Andrew that he, he would make them fishers of men. That they didn't have to take a course in being a fisher of men. That they didn't have to be some special gifting person to, to be a fisher of men. That he would simply make them fishers of men. And Christ does that. They spend three years with him learning, seeing his power, hearing his teaching, witnessing his compassion and his love. Brothers and sisters, the place that we learn and we learn about Christ and we follow after Christ and we become understanding of what compassion is, is right here in his local church. Right here as we practice on one another, caring for one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another. This is the place where we learn to be disciples, where we learn to be fishers of men, as we care for and practice with one another, bearing each other up. We, we follow the same Savior that James and John and Peter and Andrew follow. We, we learn by following him in his word. We learn by understanding this wonderful gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. This is where we learn about the Savior. This follow me was their call to a totally new life, one of service and one of sacrifice. 13 times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to follow him. It's, it's both a literal and it is a spiritual call. It is a call to leave behind everything that these men have known, family, friends, and livelihood to serve the living God. Listen, their call at this time in this place was unique, as was their, their responsibility of what Jesus had in store for them. Because they, were, they first were disciples before they became apostles. There was, there was a lot to do with these men, but the call to follow Christ as a disciple who obeys his commands and gives up all that holds him back from entering into the kingdom of God, that's universal. The immediacy of their response the wholeheartedness of their response 
the willingness of their response to leave all behind? You know, as I was preparing, a question came to mind. I was thinking about that, and the question was this. Is there anything that you are reluctant to leave behind? Is there something in your life that you have been unwilling to leave behind? This is a unique call. For most, if not all of you, the Lord is not asking you to go sell everything, give up your livelihood, and go tracing around the, the United States or the world. Some have that call. Some are called to go to different countries, to remote places, to, to serve the gospel. And I think that's a lot easier in some ways than living in a world where so much is provided, so many things are there for us, and, and so many things attract our affections and draw us away. And so, so the question is, is there something that you are unwilling to leave behind? If it is, get rid of it. Put it aside. If it's a sin, put it to death. And immediately follow after him. And there was no hesitation on these men's part to leave behind their earthly security. You might, want to, you might want to keep and protect your reputation. And so there'll be times when you can stand for Christ and you might duck. He was of no reputation. You know, throughout history, many have heard the call of God as the gospel is preached, but are unwilling to come. They're unwilling to leave behind all that they have for the pearl of great price. These men left immediately, and they, they did not look back. Look at Luke 9, 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a radical call to be a follower of Christ. It's often unpopular. It is difficult, sacrificial, sometimes thankless, but it is eternally rewarding. Every disciple of Christ is an expression of, of God's love to a dying world. That's who you are this afternoon. You are an expression of God's love to a dying world. These first disciples are a sign of God's sovereign love for every man and woman throughout all generations until he returns. He, he loved the world through them and he saved the world through them. And as disciples today, we are the enduring sign of God's love to the world. Look at the privileged tradition in this passage that we have to follow. Look at the holy calling we've been tasked with. Now listen, these men are no longer alive. Many of them were martyred. Since silence John the Baptist, silence Jesus, silence his disciples, silence Augustine, silence Whitfield, silence Spurgeon, silence Arsene's rule through natural death. It doesn't matter. God's word can never be changed, Paul writes in 2 Timothy. The gospel can never be changed. Jesus will continue to make disciples and call them to be fishers of men until he returns. Let's carry on that tradition, brothers and sisters.
Let's, let's make the radical and willing sacrifice by never looking back at what the world has to offer, but, but looking ahead to Christ. Listen, Devin and I have been telling you for years now that, that Grace Church is about growing as a disciple, helping one another grow as disciples, and making new disciples. That's why this church exists. That's what we are here for. Let us, let us continue forward, even in the midst of a pandemic even in the midst of political upheaval, even in the midst of a world that just doesn't know where to go, we do. So let's, let's be the disciples that we have been called to be. Father, thank you for your word, for the rich truths that your word holds for us. May we, as we, as we study your son's life, Father, reveal more to us that we might become more like him. We ask in Christ's name. Yeah.